You're listening to the Inglewood College Podcast. Inglewood College is a ministry of Inglewood Baptist Church in Jackson, Tennessee. We believe that just because this season is temporary doesn't mean it can't be deeply transformative. Love God. Love people. Serve the world. Tonight we're going to continue our series, The Time Is Now, going through the end of the book of John. Um, And tonight we're in John chapter 17. And I got to say, there's a lot to talk about in John 17. Um, It's a prayer that Jesus prays shortly before going to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he will pray a very different kind of prayer, uh, one that was ultimately of surrender to the Father's will. Uh, In this prayer, he's also surrendered to the Father's will, but he's talking a lot to the Father about what is about to happen and more than anything about his disciples and about them continuing on without him there. Um, And so toward the end of this prayer, he actually ends up expanding the prayer to not only his disciples who are right there with him, but all who would believe based on their testimony, which is us. So Jesus is praying for us in chapter 17 of John. Uh, And one of the big things in this prayer is Jesus' desire that his followers be unified. He wants them to experience unity. And tonight, we're going to be really focused on trying to answer this question of how will we be unified? How will we be unified? And you got to think that if Jesus, who is God, who finishes what he starts, is praying this to the Father, that he has every intention of actually finishing what he started. So if he's praying for us to be unified, he has every intention of making sure that we're unified. Okay, I know ultimately we're going to be unified one day when we're all together in heaven with him. We'll be unified with all the believers across, uh, across our country, across the globe, across all time. All believers who have had faith in Jesus and even the Old Testament saints who have had faith in Jesus and in the promises of God uh, before they even knew the name of Jesus. All of us will be unified together ultimately in the end. But I don't think Jesus was just talking about us being unified in the new heavens and new earth. I think if he's praying this about his disciples being unified, it's because he has every, uh, every intention of working on us being unified here. So we're going to read all of John 17. Okay, don't worry, it's only 26 verses. It's worth, it's worth reading all of it, though. So we're going to read it. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your, in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they received them, and they've come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even, the, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know, you, know that you have sent me. I may know to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. There's a few things that I want to mention before we start talking about the whole unity stuff. There's some things that are worth noting in the chapter that may not come up as much when we start answering that question of how we're going to be unified. But something worth noting is that the Father and Jesus are on the same page. There's such a unity in the Trinity. They're on the same page and they're sharing the same love. Okay, and we just talked about last week the Holy Spirit. So when, we talk, when we're seeing this and we're seeing the Holy Spirit, you know, he's going to communicate the things that, Jesus, uh, that are from Jesus, that are from the Father. They're all unified in these things. So we see Jesus praying right here, and we know that they're unified and on the same page. We're hearing the will of God for us. When Jesus prays to the Father, I mean, praying within the Trinity, they're having a conversation right here. We're hearing the will of God for us. And Jesus wants a lot for us. He's ready to share a lot with his disciples and with us who believe through their testimony. If you would run a quick list of some of the things that he talks about in this prayer that he wants for us, you'd come across eternal life. He wants eternal life for us. And he says, he explains what eternal life is, what, what eternal life really consists of, and that is knowing God. We see in verse 2 and 3 this idea that to have eternal life is to know God. And so kind of a side thought, you know, eternal life isn't just something that's out there in front of us, but it's something that's breaking into now because we already have the opportunity to know God through Jesus and know God through the word and know him through the spirit at work in us. But he also wants them to know the truth that comes from the Father. And he said, I've delivered this truth to you. you they have received it. Um, and and I, I want them to have this truth that comes down from us. And he's saying also that he wants them to be kept by the Father. He wants the Father to guard them and hang on to them. He's also praying that, that his joy will be fulfilled in them in verse 13. He prays that they would be kept from the evil one. He prays that they'd be sanctified in the truth. You know, in verse 17 and verse 19, he's talking about those things. We're going to come back to that uh, a little bit in a minute. But he's praying that they would have his glory. He's saying, essentially, that I've given them my glory in verse 22. And he wants us to be with him where he is forever in verse 24. You know, in a huge part, on top of that list of what he wants for them is unity in love. He wants unity in love for them. He wants us to experience unity. He mentions it several times. You can see it in verse 11. It's where it first comes up. He's talking about, I'm no longer in the world, but they're in the world. I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then in verse 21, he mentions it, that they may all be one. In verse 22, he mentions it, uh, that they may be one, even as we are one. In verse 23, he mentions it, that they may become perfectly one. Not only these specific mentions, but he also has this vibe. Like throughout the whole prayer, it's like a, a vibe of praying that they be unified in certain things, that they have a unified experience 
together. He's praying for his people as a unit, set apart from the rest of the world as a witness to the world. So he has these things in mind for this, this unity in love. And a big piece of that experience of unity really is mutual love, a mutual love that we experience and the love of God coming to us and being visible to us through one another. I think that's, that's such a huge piece of, uh, of what 1 John says. So 1 John 4, uh, you know, same guy writing this that, that's recording Jesus' words is going to go in 1 John 4, and he's going to talk about love being visible through one another. And so 1 John chapter 4, uh, we're going to read 10 through 12 and then also 19 through 21, where it says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And then in verse 19 through 21, it says, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love his brother. So you see, like, so much of, of love becoming visible in the way that we treat one another. And, and Jesus wants us to experience his love, and I think he wants us to experience his love through one another. He's talking about, uh, you know, us knowing the love of God personally. You know, in verse 23, he's mentioning it, um, you know, that, that I may be in them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Saying, I want, I want them to know how much I love them. I want the world to know how much I love the disciples and all those who are going to believe based on their testimony. I want the world to know it by the way they're, they're unified. And so it's like, how is the world going to know that, we, uh, that the love of God is evident in us if we're not unified in love? We're not acting toward one another in love. And it's not just a call to love selflessly. It's a call to experience really the love of God in unity, to experience God's love through one another. Sometimes, we're going to talk about this in a minute some more, but sometimes I think we have a hard time experiencing God's love or feeling God's love. And maybe it's because we're looking for some um, supernatural experience, something that's, that's out there and other. We want some kind of feeling inside when really maybe God has given us one another to show love to one another, and that is God showing us his love through each other. To experience love in unity, it should look like his love overflowing so much in each one of us that it just pours out on each other and that we experience God's love in that way. And that's, that's the kind of thing that exists in the Trinity, this love in unity. I mean, you look at verse 22 and 23 again where he says, the glory you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know you sent me and loved them even as you love me. It's this stuff of like, I want them to be one as we are one. I want them to know the kind of love that you have for me. So I want them to experience this. And he's in verse one at the beginning of this prayer, he's talking about, you know, that he wants the father to glorify the son and the son's gonna glorify the father. And the Father and the Son are sharing all these things together. They're sharing people together. He's sharing uh, in the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit's sharing all these things and, and working uh, according to what the Father and the Son have said. There's this perfect unity and perfect love. And I think that's what we were made to experience and to represent as his image bearers. So think about this. If we are his image bearers, we are to represent his character. I represent him. And I think he said that it's not good for man to be alone because he's not alone. The Father, Son, and Spirit are together. There's a perfect unity and a perfect love there, and he's made us to experience that kind of experience, both in relationship with him, but also with one another. 
that we're to represent the perfect unity and perfect love in this world. There's one problem. He made us, he put his, his image in us, he said it's not good that we'd be alone, he made a way for there to be more human beings, and then sin. The problem of sin comes in and it messes things up, right? It not only messes up the relationship that we have with God, it messes up our relationships with each other. So that it's really hard for us now to relate to each other in perfect unity and perfect love. Really, it's impossible. It is impossible with us. You know, because we always, somewhere lingering in the back of our minds and the back of our hearts, even with our good actions, we have these little selfish motives, self-interested motives and self-centeredness, and it's really hard for us to be unified because we have people who don't see eye to eye. And because sin exists in the world, we argue about who's right and who's wrong because there really is a right and wrong. And we all think that we know best. Like, we all think that, you know, that our thoughts are the right ones. Or maybe even like we get so caught up in our own thoughts or in our own stuff that we don't even think about other people. How are we going to be unified with people that we don't even recognize or even pay any attention to because we're so focused on ourselves? And that's the problem. So how are we going to be unified? Much less get anywhere close to being perfectly one, as he talks about in verse 22 or 23. And so here's, here's what I got. Three ways. Three ways that we might be unified. Three things that are going to make it happen, can make it happen. One, a work of God. It's going to have to be a work of God. It is impossible with us, not so with God. So we see a few things that, that God is doing, works that God is doing uh, that Jesus is praying about. Okay, so in his prayer, he's going to talk about a few things that God does, that he can do. For one, is that inviting us into this relationship, inviting us to know him. That is a work of God that's going to help us to be unified. We look at verse, 20, I mean, verse 2 and 3 about this whole eternal life. It is um, Jesus saying he has authority that has been given to him to have authority to offer eternal life to people. He's saying, that is, that is up to me. That it, he is God and he is offering eternal life to people. I think sometimes we think that salvation is a given. We get this wrong idea that like God is up there and he had to offer salvation to us. Like he, oh, he, he has to make sure that everybody has this opportunity at eternal life. So he had, Jesus had to go do what he did. If, you know, like God can't just leave us here. Can't just leave us where we're at. No, I think he could have. I think in his full character and his love for us, it overflowed so much so that he, in some sense, had to reach out to us in love. This was his will, his plan. He was going to carry it out. But man, salvation is not a given. We're not owed this. This is all God. And so we see this isn't something that we deserved. This is something where literally God's love in the Trinity just overflowed so much into creation and then into redemption and into eternity. It's not something that any of us have deserved for having personally rebelled against him. And that's what we've done. So the invite for us to come to him is costly. For any one of us to be able to come to God, it's, it's a costly thing. Jesus had to come if this was going to happen. He had to live a perfect life. He had to die a, a sacrificial death in our place and then rise from the grave. He had to accomplish these things if any one of us is going to be able to be invited in, and this is exactly what he's doing. He's praying this right now, and he's about to go the next day to the cross, and then 
you know, a couple days later, he's going to be resurrected. And he's going to be able to offer us the Holy Spirit and offer us salvation. But he had to accomplish that. It's all God. He's the one who's making this happen. Look at verses 18 and 19 where it says, you know, he's saying to the Father, as you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Jesus consecrates himself. What that means is basically he, he sets himself or up or keeps himself as holy to be a sacrifice. He's saying, I consecrate myself. I set myself apart in order for them to be sanctified. And to be sanctified really means, you know, to be set apart. And we're going to talk about sanctification in a minute, but this, like, idea of Jesus set himself apart in order for us to be set apart. He's making this possible. And then not only that, but he's unifying us in himself. This whole sense of unity is going to have to be a work of God on our behalf. And we need to pause at times and just sit and think about the initiative from God and the power that God showed, the love that he showed in working to bring us to himself and working to bring us together. Because it wasn't just bringing us to himself, but in bringing us to himself, he's bringing us toward one another. It's like if you could picture, you know, like something in the middle of a circle and drawing things from the outside of the circle toward the middle. All the things are getting closer to one another as they get closer to the middle. If God is at the center of all things, and he is the one drawing us to himself, to draw us to himself is to draw us to one another. And this is his work that he is doing and making possible through Jesus. And Jesus is about to finish what he started on this earth um, as he prays this prayer. None of this is ultimately about us. It's him and it's his work. And we have the privilege. He's given us the privilege of being with him. And not only being with him, but being with one another in him. It is a privilege and something that we ought to thank the Lord for. And the second we make it about ourselves, we've missed the point and we've sown the seeds of disunity. The second we make this about ourselves, try to put ourselves at the center, all of it falls apart. So this is a work of God. And another aspect of this, of like what he's going to have to do is keep us in his name. Jesus is praying in verse 11 and 12. He says, I'm no longer in the world, but they're in the world. I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one even as we are one. And he's talking about the next verse, how he has guarded them up to this point. Um, and he's asking the Father to keep them in his name. And you got to think about like what this means. What is his name? Really, what, what it's in a name is, is a name represents the whole of someone's character. Like when, it's, when you say someone's name, what comes to mind is going to be both how they look, but also how they are and their relationships, what you know about them, the whole of the character that you know when you hear someone's name. And so his name is the whole character of God. It represents all that he is. And so Jesus is praying that God would keep us in his whole character keep that whole character in front of us, that it represents all that he is, his holiness, his justice, his grace, his steadfastness and righteousness, his mercy and his faithfulness. You know, he is more than love. We talk about God as love, but he's also got other attributes. He is even more than love, and yet no aspect of his character is less than love. Love is tied to every single one of the characteristics, but he is so big and so beyond us, and we, he's revealed so much of himself to us, but then there's still things about him. It's still things about his will and the way he works that we don't know. And Jesus is praying, Father, keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. By your character, hold them fast. 
You know, I love what Jesus says earlier in John, actually, about no one being able to snatch any one of his people out of his father's hand. He said, no one's gonna snatch him out of my hand. Because of his character and all that he is, when you are his, you do not stop being his. He's saying, hold them fast by who you are, but also keep that character in front of them. He's gonna do that through his word, the things that the, or things that the word reveals to us. He's gonna do that through the spirit that we talked about last week. And so he's gonna do this. He's gonna keep us in his word. And notice he says, he doesn't say, I want them to be out of the world. He said, I've chosen them out of the world, but I don't want them to leave the world. What I want you to guard them against is the evil one. I want you to guard them against the evil one. You know, you see this in verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Actually, he's gonna say, I'm sending them into the world. I want them to go into the world, even the world that hates them. But what I want you to guard them against is the evil one. And he will do it. It's a work of God. A work of God makes it possible for us to be unified because God is bringing us to himself. And by bringing us to himself, he's bringing us closer to one another. That's what, how it's going to work. And there's a second way that he's gonna, or that we might be unified. Sanctification. And that's the word that we talked about a second ago, to be sanctified. This itself is a work of God. In our lives, for us to be sanctified, it must be God's work. God is doing the work of setting us apart. So here's what we mean when we talk about sanctification. It really does mean set apart as holy. To be set apart as holy. And clearly this is something that Jesus intended for his followers because he says in verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then verse 19, like we already read, that he consecrates himself so that they may be sanctified in the truth. And not only that, but in 14 and 16, he's talking about them not being of the world. So there's a sense of like, I set them apart as my people to be holy as I am holy. They are not of the world, and yet I'm going to send them into the world. And that is why they need to be sanctified. They need to be sanctified because they're still in this world, but they're not going to be of the world. They're going to be set apart as holy, as mine. And again, this is a work of God that he's going to do through the word. Jesus in verses 6 through 8 is talking about how he's delivered everything to them that the Father gave him. Saying, God, Father, I have given them everything that you gave me, and they have believed it. And now he's saying, I want you to keep them in that word. They've received the word, they've believed the word, and I want you to keep them in the word. And it's not just them. Because then he's going to go on and say in verse 20, I don't ask just for these, but also for those who are going to believe in me through their word, meaning their testimony. One of the guys who's there wrote this book. One of the guys who's there hearing Jesus pray this over them wrote down these words for us. And we're hearing through their testimony, and that is how we have believed. The Holy Spirit has worked in us through the word being shared with us. And so we're going to be sanctified through this same word that we have heard, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this word, the revelation that God has given us. And the thing is, the more time you spend in this word, in humility, surrendering to this God who's given the word, the less interest you're going to have in conflict with your brothers and sisters in Christ. The more that you're in this word, really, in humility, the less you're going to have a reason to be in conflict with your brothers and sisters. Or the less you're going to want conflict with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Some people study the word, and they study it like a textbook, and they use it for arguments. They like to argue. They like to have debates with people. They like to have debates with unbelievers. They like to have debates with other believers who disagree with them about things. You know, I'm sure a fun one that happens, maybe that you've heard, is predestination. 
People want to get in there and they want to study, oh, what does God say about predestination? Let's have an argument about it. See what kind of sides we end up on. The more you're in the word in humility, the less you're going to want to have conflict with your brothers and sisters in Christ. I think that's true because I think that it changes our hearts when we let it. But even this, even God's word sometimes, we can come at it and want nothing to do really with God and just be hard-hearted toward what he actually says in there. You know, and it's more than just being held separate from the world for us. It is this idea of being set apart as holy, that we're as believers to be set apart as holy. We're supposed to be studying the word, and the word is going to help us, and God is going to work through the spirit in the word to help us want to uh, be set apart, really not be like the world. But it's not just not being like the world that God's going to do. That's not all sanctification is. Sanctification is setting apart as holy, growing in holiness. For us, when we talk about sanctification in the church, a lot of times we're talking about growing in Christ-likeness. And that is a good way to sum up what it is. It's not only being set apart and not doing what the world does, but it's doing things that the world doesn't do, doing things that are Christ-like and living in the way uh, that he has made us to live, in the way that he has given us an example to live in Christ. You know, we look at verse 22. You know, God is, God is ready to do something in us. Okay, in verse 22, he says, the glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. What does that even mean for him to give us his glory? Now, you hear some people talk about, like, how we're going to reign with God forever. And I think that's absolutely biblically true. That we're going to reign with God forever. But I don't think that we should start seeing ourselves as being on par with Jesus. Like, if we're going to be on the same level as him. He's going to share all this glory and reign with us. And we're still going to be Jesus, you know? It's still going to be something other than we are. And yet, he's going to give us his glory. What does this even mean? I think what it means is becoming like him by beholding his glory. I've given them my glory. I let them see it so that they may grow to become like me. He wants us to see and to have his glory because it means transformation for us. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He wants us to see his glory in order to be transformed. He wants us to see how great and how holy and how wonderful he is, how perfect he is in order for us to be transformed by seeing his glory, by seeing his beauty, by seeing his power and his, his great love for us. But not only that great love, but also his great holiness. And the ultimate end for us, according to Romans 8.30, is that we're going to be glorified. He talks about how uh, we've been set apart, you know, all this stuff, and you're going to be sanctified, but then also glorified. And in the end, yes, we're going to be like him when we see him fully as he is. See what 1 John says in th- chapter 3, 1 through 3. To see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Eventually. We're going to see him as he is, and we're going to be fully unified in love when we are fully glorified. When we are made perfect, we will have perfect unity with one another and perfect love for one another, and I look forward to that day. But he says that as we look forward to that day, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. It's not just to look forward to that day, you know, this world doesn't really matter, just can't wait till we're there. 
No, if you're looking forward to that day, then you ought to be pursuing holiness in the meantime. Pursuing holiness, pursuing sanctification, because this is going to be the way that we are unified. And this is a work of God in our lives, but our participation is expected. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is working in us to sanctify us. It's a work of God. We're also involved in this. And as we become more and more sanctified and behold his glory, he's going to unify us together. He's going to bring us together. He's going to remove some of the things from our lives that keep us from being unified. Some of those selfish motives, some of those uh, desires to be in conflict, the desire for the argument, the desire to be right. He's going to begin to remove some of those things. He's going to make us more and more like himself. He's going to bear the fruit of Christ in us, bear the fruit of the Spirit in us, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and so much more. Some of these things are going to be birthed in us through this sanctification. He's going to bring this fruit out of us as we see more and more of who he is, and it's going to allow us to be unified. But there's a third thing that I think is going to help us to be unified. How are we going to be unified? Through a shared motive. A shared motive. We ought to be, like Chris was praying earlier, motivated by God's love. Motivated in everything we do by God's love because we are those who have been loved beyond compare. The kind of love that we've experienced from God, the kind of love that he tells us is ours in Christ, is beyond anything the world could possibly comprehend, beyond anything that even we can comprehend right now. It's beyond anything that we can necessarily feel right now. We got this a little bit earlier in 1 John 4, but this love that we've experienced, is ought, it ought to motivate us. We love because God loved. We love because he first loved us. That means we love him because he first loved us, but we also love one another because he first loved us. So this love ought to motivate us. And it makes sense. You know, I've been invited into this relationship with God where I really know true love. And I'm in this experience along with other people who know that same love from him. So why wouldn't we get along with one another well? Why wouldn't we love one another well? If I've experienced his love and you've experienced his love, why can't we love each other? Why can't we have a good relationship where we're gracious and compassionate toward each other? Regardless of, what, uh, of where even a person stands with God. Why can't I love people who are outside the faith if I've been loved so well? The problem is probably that we fall for some sort of lie that convinces us that God doesn't really love us that way. I think a lot of times we forget our shared motive because we forget that God loves us. We forget the motive. And there are reasons that the lie works when Satan tells us that God doesn't really love us the way that we think he does, the way that we hope he does. You know, we go through difficult stuff. We live in a world full of people who still sin, people who are supposed to love us, who hurt us. And so we go through things with people, including church people, people who are supposed to love Jesus, who maybe don't love us or don't show their love to us or have hurt us in the past or whatever. You know, and, and people are awful. People are awful sometimes, even church people. I swear, I was telling somebody earlier today that the place where I see the most depravity in the world is on Twitter with church people. People who say they love Jesus. I know you guys aren't even on Twitter. You don't even like that. I'm an old person. Okay, I like Twitter. I'm on there. I really don't even like Twitter. I'm just, I'm just attached to it now. And I get on there and I scroll through. People say terrible things to each other. People who say they love Jesus. 
two other people who say they love Jesus. And beyond that, the world is messed up. And we look, and of course we have reasons. People are like, oh, you know, maybe God's love isn't real. Maybe it's not everything we hoped it would be. Because how could it be with the world the way it is? And maybe you've begun to believe that lie. Let me take you back to a couple of verses real quick. Verse 23. I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. If you ever question whether God loves you, ask this question. Does the Father love the Son? Does God the Father love God the Son? Because he says that he loves you with the same love. The same love that the Father loves the Son with, he loves you. And that's what Jesus wants the world to know. He wants the world to know because he wants them to experience that love. And they're going to know by us living in that love. You know, and here's another question for you. Did Jesus die for your sins and rise again? We're going to celebrate that this weekend. That is stronger proof for, of his love for you than any, any reason you might have to believe that he doesn't love you. Any lack of feeling or whatever. There's stronger proof in the cross and the resurrection for his love for you than any of those things. And here's what that love does for us. We do not have to worry about ourselves. Like I have a father who knows what I need. I have somebody that I can lean on when I'm in need. I have a people that I can be a part of, a people that ought to love me, people who actually do love me, brothers and sisters in Christ. Man, I know who I am in Jesus. I know that I'm beloved. I am immeasurably valuable. My life is on purpose and it has meaning and I am complete in Christ. I don't have to fear man. I don't have to fear rejection. I don't have to fear missing out and I don't have to fear death. I have all of this in Christ. And if I have all of that in Christ, then I can get outside of my own little bubble of worrying about me and making sure that I'm good and actually love other people selflessly because myself is taken care of. And so I can love them and they can love me and we can have this sense of unity and love as the people of God. But we're also not just motivated by his love, but also motivated to show the world Jesus. My motivation isn't just, oh, he loves me so well, so I want to love other people, but my motive is I want to show the world Jesus. What Jesus has done for us is the most important thing that's ever been done. And the truth about it is the most important thing that I know. What if we as believers actually acted like that is true? If we actually acted like it's true, we'd probably talk about it more. We probably wouldn't get so emotionally charged up by other people who get under our skin or get so emotionally charged up by things that matter less than this. We get up in arms about all kinds of things that don't really matter in the grand scheme of things. We probably would less if we reminded ourselves all the time of what the most important thing is and what we're really motivated by, what we're really motivated to do, and that is to share Jesus with people. And I'm not saying there aren't a lot of things in the world for us to, to bring truth to or to have dialogue and debate with people about. Man, there's nothing as important as what Jesus has done for us. If we really took our number one goal seriously, sharing the love of Jesus and, you know, with the world, we'd probably fight a lot less and honor believers a lot more because we know that 
through this unity, Jesus has a goal. The unity that we are to have has a goal. Verse 21, that the world would believe Jesus was sent by the Father. Verse 23, that the world would know Jesus was sent by the Father and that the Father loves his people like he loves the Son. You know, if we make no attempt to be unified and love one another, then the world is going to have a hard time believing Jesus is God or that there is a God out there at all who loves us. You know, like the world is, the world is trying so hard to find meaning. Some of you are in that boat. You're like, I'm trying so hard to find some sense of meaning, something to live for. People will do and say and agree with ridiculous things just to belong to something. They're trying desperately to do something or be a part of something that matters. I think people are in a desperate search for God in our world. Are we helping them to see him? Or are we just as consumed as the world around us with worldly things? That's a real question we need to ask ourselves. Am I consumed with worldly things? Is it keeping me from being unified in love with other believers? Or is my number one goal helping the world that's desperate for God to actually see him through our unity? You know, we're sent to make Jesus, make Jesus known, to make known what Jesus has made known. Jesus said that he has uh, made these things known to the disciples. He says, as you sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. Having made known all these things and they have believed it, now he's saying, now I send you as my disciples into the world to make known what I've made known to you. And then he goes on, he talks about us in verse 20 and following. And so when he's saying this, I've sent them in the world, he's also saying that of us. We're in the same boat as those believers, just as he was sent into the world to do what he did. Now we are sent into the world to represent Jesus and to tell the world what Jesus has made known. I wish we had a a bunch more time to get into practical application. Here's something I want us to, to think about just for a second. Something that could hit close to home. I think that we believers have gotten too comfortable critiquing other believers, critiquing bodies of believers, critiquing church leaders. I would include myself in that, we. We get caught up doing this comparison game, which never really works for us as individuals. How are we going to think it's going to work for us as a church, as unified believers? We get so caught up in comparison comparison, comparing churches, comparing uh, church leaders, comparing church people, or, you know, you get so caught up, um, even beyond the comparison, just the judgment. You know, we start to judge other believers. We start to set ourselves up as like the, the one that has the opportunity to judge or the right to judge. And, you know, we talked about this with conflict a few weeks ago. We don't, we don't have that position to judge. We can't set ourselves up as judge. That's not our role. We can recognize when people are wrong. And there are times when churches and church leaders and church people are wrong. And we still need grace. And we need grace from one another. And there are appropriate ways to handle situations when church people and church leaders and churches go wrong. There are right ways to do those things. And, and this, and I'm telling you, I'm speaking, I'm preaching to myself right now. Gossip is not one of those appropriate ways. It does not help the church. When other believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, fail, we should mourn with them. Mourn for them. Absolutely hate it. 
We should mourn when a church struggles. We should celebrate when other, like, whatever, hold on. We should celebrate when other brothers and sisters in Christ do well when they grow in Christ. We should celebrate when other churches reach new people and have people who are discipled and mature in those churches. We should never set ourselves up as the judge, never set ourselves up against other believers. If that is the attitude that we have, then we are missing the point. We're making things about us. We're making things about, you know, just that interesting conversation that people are having that we want to be a part of. Look, let's, let's take the focus off of ourselves. Let's stop, um, stop doing this thing where we're cutting other people down. We want other people to fail so that we can look better. It isn't helping things. And I'm, t- I'm telling you, I am the chief of sinners here. Okay? I'm the problem. And I feel like a lot of us are probably in the same boat. And I'm not, this isn't like a therapy session where I'm trying to admit all the, all the ways that I've gone wrong. But I've been the problem before in churches and in, in church relationships and in relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. And I don't want to be that. On the whole, there's a huge, there's a huge piece of this whole puzzle, this whole unity puzzle. I'm afraid that we talk too much and do too little. I'm afraid we talk too much and do too little. And again, I'm preaching to myself. Wherever you find yourself, church-wise, whoever you find yourself following church leader-wise, and whoever you find yourself doing life with or around, all those brothers and sisters in Christ that are kind of even, even outside of your closer circles, those people that you, you know and do life around, listen, love where you are in word and deed. Do what God sets in front of you to do. Share the love of Jesus with people with unbelievers. Share the word of God and the good news of Jesus Christ. Honor your brothers and sisters in Christ, whether you like them or not, whether they annoy you or not, including and maybe even especially those who have been called to lead in the church. Build up fellow believers by speaking truth, holding accountable, serving one another with your gifts, being peacemakers and reconcilers, and then let God do the work that only he can do of unifying us together and bearing fruit through that because he can and he will. Come back to that motive. The motive is never to have the best church in town, uh, whatever standards that, you know, we might draw up for what that means. The motive isn't to find the best experience for ourselves. It's not to make ourselves look better or feel better or to have something interesting to talk about. The motive is not to try to have it all together in our circle of believers either so that other people look at us and feel like we have it all together. The motive isn't about us at all. If and when we all have the same motive of communicating to the world the truth about God, that Jesus has been sent by the Father, that he's done what he's done, that he is who he says he is, and that he loves us the way that the Father loves the Son, when we're committed to actually communicating that, and that's our motive above all things, then I think we're going to get a chance to experience something amazing, real unity and love. And the time is now because it's not going to get any easier. The world isn't getting better. It's not going to suddenly be easier for you in your interpersonal relationships or in your church relationships or finding a church, whether it's in this season of life or the next season of life. It's not going to get easier for you. So the time is now to begin living in unity with other believers, seeking God's face, asking for his help. You know, can we, the followers of Jesus, just try 
treating each other like we're going to spend eternity together. It's not a competition. It's not winning and losing. We win and lose together. We win and lose together as believers across churches, across the country, across the world. We win and lose together. And when we disagree, we don't have to fight. We don't have to pass judgment. We communicate. We respect. We honor. We forgive. We pursue peace and reconciliation. Romans 12, 17 and 18 says this. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Let's give that a try. The time is now to do that. And again, we're not alone in this. It's a work of God first. And if we will just do our part to live peaceably with all, I think that real unity in love is possible because with God, it is possible. We serve a big and good God. 